to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians and chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll begin reading at verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will with him also bring those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This has been a week of some high-profile deaths and funerals. Uh, the Queen of Soul, a cultural icon, Aretha Franklin, dead at the age of 76 of pancreatic cancer, and quite, the, quite a celebration, a, a five-hour celebration service at the Greater Grace Temple. She was laid to rest in Detroit. John McCain, a war veteran, a prisoner of war, presidential candidate, U.S. senator, dead at the age of 81 of brain cancer and services held in the Arizona State Capitol and North Phoenix Baptist Church, the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C., at the Washington National Cathedral, and today at the chapel at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, where he will be laid to rest. Both of those services were, were attended by uh, the powerful and the rich, the famous, celebrities and politicians at those funerals, eulogies by former presidents. There's a mingling of sorrow and celebration. But what's interesting in all of that is there was a distinctively Christian message if you turned into any of, the, of those services. And then it hits a little closer to home when we got the word that Ryan Gabler, Kristen's brother, went home to be with the Lord Friday after battling brain cancer. That brings it right home, doesn't it? We come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this passage of hope in the face of death. Hope. I, I heard it in the words that Kristen's mom posted on Facebook. Jennifer Hudson sang it in Detroit at that gathering when she sang these words. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. The, the congregation in the National Cathedral, the powerful 
famous. The congregation sang it at the National Cathedral. When they sang this together, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. We come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in these verses, uh, a passage on what we often refer to as the rapture of the church. But the primary purpose of 1 Thessalonians 4, and continues on into chapter 5, the primary purpose isn't to fill in the blocks in our end times crossword puzzles with dates and events and personalities. It's not the purpose of the text. I believe in the rapture of the church. I believe it's what we're looking forward to. The problem I have with a lot of end time stuff is the wild speculations, the crazy imaginations, and the unfulfilled predict- predictions that quite honestly have contributed to a lot loss of credibility within the church. But even more serious in the midst of all that, I think it has resulted in a major case of missing the point. We, I speak of myself as a pastor, we as a church believe in the future visible bodily return from heaven of Jesus Christ. We believe that. We proclaim that. We seek to order our lives according to it. We as a church also happen to believe that 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 coming is going to happen in two stages. The rapture of the church, which is what I believe 1 Thessalonians 4 is referring to, and also when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the rapture of the church, but also what is more commonly called the, the return of Jesus Christ, when he will return to this earth to reign over this earth. All true Christians believe in the visible bodily return of Jesus Christ. Whether it happens in one or two stages is a secondary discussion. It's important, but it's a secondary discussion. I believe, as we said, what we have here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that first stage, the rapture. Now, this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 is not going to answer all the end times questions we may have. And my purpose is not going to be to try to answer questions that the passage doesn't answer. I just want us to see what Paul is writing to these Thessalonian believers. As we have been working our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians, we have, we have been focusing on the theme of a church for the darkest hour. Because there are all kinds of things happening around us and things that can raise alarm and concern. I'm not convinced that the church is always responding as it ought to respond in this dark hour. Can the, can the church still impact this community? Can the church still impact this culture? In its early existence, common men and women were coming to faith in Jesus Christ by the thousands. Read about that in the book of Acts, by the, by the thousands. Well, at the same time, that church was being fiercely resisted by those with power and money. Yet it was thriving. People were coming, being drawn to the church. What was it that made it so attractive? Well, it certainly wasn't its facilities. It certainly wasn't its 
programs. It was its message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was its supernatural power through the indwelling, enabling Holy Spirit. It was the transformed life of those believers. It was the the transformed life of those churches. And that's what we have seen in this congregation there that Paul wrote this letter to in the city of Thessalonica. It was a church that was less than a year old. And yet it was a church whose impact was reaching beyond its congregation, beyond its city, even beyond its province in less than a year. Less than a year. And so as we've worked our way, we have just attempted in in our study to, to try to describe this church. So what kind of church is it that can have such an impact in a dark world. And we've described this church from 1 Thessalonians as a, as a converted, authentic, unprejudiced, perceptive, loving, holy, pure, subversive, and growing church. Which brings us now to 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We look at it and describe it as a second coming church. We come to the text here and, and the verse makes it clear in verse 13 that there was a, there was a troubling issue. Things have been really smooth sailing as Paul has been interacting with these, with these believers. And, and all the way, even up here to chapter 4 and verse 13, he has said again and again, you know this and you remember this and you saw this and you know this and you're sure of this and you know that. And all of a sudden, he comes to verse 13 and says, oh, here, here's something you don't know about. There's, there's something they didn't know and it, was, and it was troubling them. And it had to do with this matter of death. Specifically, it had to do with this matter of the death of Christian brothers and sisters. In verse uh, 13, he he talks about those who have fallen asleep. That's the same people as those who have died in verse 14 and those who sleep in Jesus. That's who he's talking about. Christians, they're Christian brothers and sisters who had died, and it's it's troubling them. There's, There's some uncertainty. Apparently, this young church was being faced with it. We're not given a whole lot of detail, but it, it, it causes us to, to wonder if this church, this young church less than a year old, is already being confronted with the reality of brothers and sisters in Christ who have died, whether of natural causes or from the persecution, because Paul has made it clear to us as we've read this letter that they were facing persecution. Chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, you received the word in much affliction. Chapter 2, verse 14, you also suffered. Chapter 3 and verse 3, I don't want you to be shaken by these afflictions. It was a suffering church. It could be that some had actually lost their lives. Being constantly confronted with the reality of death. Facing death gets you thinking about how real it is. And so, and so there's, there's, they've got some questions. There's a, there's a troubling issue. And it seems that behind this maybe are, 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 are two questions that, was on the, that were on the minds of these believers. The first is, is what happens? So what is it that happens after death? Remember, this is, these are young believers. There's a mix of, of those who came out of a Jewish background. The majority of them came out of a Gentile Greek kind of a background. And Paul has, you know, Paul has taught them. He, he spent a little while there, has taught them, and he's trying to just confirm again the things that, he, that he's communicated. But it's very likely that there was some uncertainty and confusion as this, this whole matter of death in general. Most Jews believed that history was moving toward a final conclusion that was in God's hands. 
And most Jews believed in the resurrection of the body at the, at the end. I mean, you read in the Old Testament and, and you read of, of resurrection hope at the end. For Gentiles, so those who came out of this Greek background, a little bit different. They, their, their views were, were varied. There were some, uh, there were those among the Gentiles who, who believed in annihilation. That is, not only did the body dissolve, but the soul dissolved. You ceased to exist. And then there, there, was, there were those who, and it was very common, who, who believed and taught reincarnation or what's called the transmigration of the soul. In which at death, you know, the, the, the soul leaves this body, but the soul then is going to enter into another form. It may, become, it, it may become an animal. It may become another human being. And, and then there were those who, who, who taught that there was, that there was a, a survival after death, but not as a personal conscious being. So way back in the first century, there was already this Star Wars idea of joining the universal force going on. And so there are these, these varied views and varied understandings of, uh, of death and, and, and what happens after death. And so, and so that, that's a bit of what's on their, on their minds. But really underneath even that is this question. When Jesus Christ returns, will believers who have died participate? Now, now in order to appreciate that, I think we need to, we need to understand that, that the first century church, the first century believers really lived in anticipation, thinking that Jesus was going to return before their lifetime was up. I mean, the, you sense that in the disciples, you sense that in other places that Paul is writing. You know, and Paul, even in this passage, talks about we. Now, he may be talking just about a, a generic, you know, we of all Christians, but there's, there's a sense in which there was this, this anticipation uh, that, you know, Christ had left, but it wasn't going to be all that long, and he was going to be coming back. And when we came back, then they were just, if you will, going to take that next, that next step into kingdom, whatever it might be. But the question is, so, so they're starting to have brothers and sisters in Christ say, well, what about them? What, are they going to participate in this? What's, what's the hope for them? This matter of the, of the coming of Jesus Christ is a, is a key theme throughout, uh, throughout 1 Thessalonians. It, it, it's raised, this matter is raised in every single chapter of the book. He talks about it in chapter 1 and, and, and verse 10. He says, we, you know, we're to, to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. So we're waiting for him to come. He will deliver us from the wrath to come. You see it over in chapter 2 and verse 19. For this is our hope. For what is our hope and joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? He talks about it in chapter 3 and verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. He talks about it here in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. He talks about it in chapter 5. This is, this is a, it's on his mind, it's on their minds. The Old Testament talked about the coming Messiah. The New Testament reveals that Jesus was that Messiah and that he was going to come a second time. They believed in its imminence. But what if you died before it happened? What was your hope? It's an important issue. Obviously, it's an important issue from the way Paul talks about it. I mean, what's at stake? Well, it seems that Paul says what's at stake is our hope. Lest you sorrow, he says, as others who have no hope. What's at stake? What is it that we long for? What is it that we're living for? So, We've got this, this troubling issue. So Paul then proceeds now to give them some information in verses 14 through 17 to try to fill in the gaps for them. 
And he begins by telling them what they already know and believe. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the, 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 the sense there is not that they didn't. Really, the, the, the sense of that verse is since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. He is declaring a fact. So he starts with what they already know and believe. And it's this, that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. This is not mythology. This is not metaphor. This is history. And Paul was an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus Christ. He had seen the risen Savior who was crucified and who rose again and who had ascended on high to heaven. Paul had seen him, had interacted with him. Paul had declared his testimony to these people in Thessalonica. They had believed his witness. You see, the gospel, Christian faith, is not built on ideas or morals, but on a historical person named Jesus and on historical facts. Jesus was crucified, he was buried, he rose again. And so Paul, if you will, as he's trying to help them with them, he, 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 he once again reminds them, here's what happened. Here's what happened. You know, well, the gospel is, is not just here's what happened, but the gospel also tells us why it happened. You see, the gospel isn't just about the fact that those things happen in history. The gospel tells us why those things happen in history. Paul had taught them this, and they had believed. Back in chapter 1, verses 19, he, he said that, they had, that Christ died to, to deliver them, to deliver them from their idolatry, from, from the sin that gripped them, the sin that held them, and to deliver them from wrath or to deliver them from judgment for sin and to give them new life through the resurrection. That's why Jesus died. That's why he rose again. And they had heard that from Paul. So the gospel tells us what happened. It tells us why it happened, but also tells us how what Christ did can happen to you. And it means you must believe. These Christians believed, chapter 2, verse 13. When Paul proclaimed the message, he proclaimed the gospel. He told them about Jesus, who he was, and what he did. He explained to them why Jesus died on the cross. He explained to them what happened through the resurrection. They believed and all that Christ had done, the, the work of Christ upon the cross, was applied to their lives. Their sins were forgiven. They were released from wrath. And they were given eternal life. So Paul talks, he, he starts with what they already know and believe. Jesus died and rose again. And then he goes on, so, or, or, or well, in the same way, Christians who have died will rise again. The future hope of the Christian for, for eternal life and resurrection is rooted in what already happened in Christ, who defeated death, who died and rose again. When a believer dies, the soul goes to be with God, for to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The body remains here. That's why we use the phrase, not just in the church, we talk about laying the body to rest. It's where that idea comes from. It's the, the picture is that of the, of the body sleeping in the grave. Not, not soul sleep, but the body sleeping in the grave. Cemetery. It means sleeping place. When Jesus comes, he is going to awaken the dead. 
and to gather his church through resurrection. Resurrection like Jesus experienced into a new glorified body. Paul says this is what's going to happen. And he roots it in what they already knew, what they already believed about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he continues on, and now he tells them something they didn't, they didn't really know. They didn't, they didn't quite understand. Um, and, and that is, that is uh, verse, again, verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say by the word of the Lord. Paul says, let me, let me, let me, let me tell you something else. Let me, let me fill in some more information. We, we, we have, he says, I have the, the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord has given to me. I've, this further explanation, this further understanding of what's going to happen. And we have a sure word from God on this. You see, the fact of resurrection isn't new. But here's what Paul reveals in verses 15 and 16. He says, listen, not only will Christians who have died participate. They're going to go first. They're going to go first. And then he goes on in verse 16 because of this. And he, he says, let, let me explain what I mean. Let me, let, me tell you, let me tell you how this is going to happen. So first of all, he talks here about a descent. He says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Jesus bodily is coming. Jesus is not going to send someone else for his church. He's not going to send an angel to go get his church. He's not going to send someone else. Jesus himself is going to come. He is going to come bodily in that glorified body that was his after the resurrection. He is going to descend from heaven. Takes us back to his promise or the promise that was given in Acts 1, 9 through 11 when Jesus ascended. It says, while they, his disciples, his followers were watching, Jesus was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from, up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. And here, 1 Thessalonians 4, he is descending, even as it was foretold. Jesus said in John 14, 2, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. So, the Lord himself, Jesus, bodily is going to descend from heaven. And then there's going to be a summons. It says that with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. What's interesting is in all of this, Paul seems to be weaving together a lot of, a lot of elements. He seems to be weaving together Old Testament descriptions of, of God's glorious appearances. And, and he is weaving in things that Jesus taught along with giving fresh revelation in, in this passage. These words that he uses here speak of, of authority and of power and of victory and divinity. He says, he will descend from heaven with a shout. Remember when Pastor Hawkins was here and he's preached before. I've heard him preach from 1 Thessalonians 4. And, and, and he, he would say, you know, you know what's going to happen there? Jesus is going to be descending from that, from that highest heaven. He's going to have to come down through the heavens where, where Satan and his demons, you know, exist and function. And so, and, and of course, they're not going to want him coming. They're not going to want the saints going up. But Jesus is going to shout and say, out of the way, I'm coming through. And he's going to get his saints. He's going to gather his saints. I think also, however, as I, as I read this, my mind goes to John chapter 11 when Jesus stood at a grave one day, a tomb of Lazarus who'd been dead four days, wrapped in the grave clothes. 
the, de- the, the decay process beginning, and there's despair, and there's sorrow. And Jesus comes to that tomb, and he stands in front of that tomb. And if you read it in John 11, it says he speaks with a, with a very loud and strong voice, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, who was dead, rises and comes out of the tomb. I think that may be some of the, some of the picture here as, as Jesus descends, this resurrected Jesus in glorified body, he comes down and he says to his church, arise, arise, and up from the graves they will come, those who have died. It says the voice of an archangel. There's only one archangel named in scripture, his name is Michael. He's portrayed as a fighter. He's portrayed as a defender of Israel. He is associated with the resurrection of Old Testament saints in Daniel 12.1, so it could be that he's a part of this. The trumpet of God. As you look at uh, the trumpets, especially there in the Old Testament, trumpets were used to make announcements. Trumpets were used to summon people. They were used to signal Israel, stay. Israel, let's rise up. We're going to move. They, were, they, they, they announced the beginning of feasts. Back in the book of Exodus, when Israel was gathered around Mount Sinai, it says the glory of of God came down on the mountain, and and it came down in a frightening way. Thunder and lightning. I mean, this mountain is shaking. And said when the, you know, when the trumpet blasts draw near, and, and, and there you read this trumpet blast, and it grew louder and louder and louder, signaling the presence of a glorious God. It seems to, to me as I look at that description that when Jesus descends to gather his church, there will be an unmistakable announcement, the shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. We're not told, Paul doesn't tell us, uh, if, if believers are the only one who will hear, if believers are the only one who will see and be aware, I don't know. I, I, I don't come away from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 thinking this is going to be some secretive, mysterious disappearance with everyone's clothes lying around on the ground. I, that's not my takeaway from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, you know, I, I know we typically, and, and I'm not trying to, to, to break any, any theories or whatever, I know we typically think of rapture as this mysterious kind of thing and all, all of a sudden this sudden mysterious disappearance of people and and everyone's going to wonder what's going on. Well, it may be, but it also could be it's unmistakable what happens, and, and the world that hates God just, just rejects it all. You read Revelation, you read some of the amazing things that are going on there, and the world's still going to shake a fist in the, in, in the face of God and defy him. He is going to come in glory and power and authority. And then we see, as Paul continues, there's going to be resurrection and the dead in Christ will rise first. Here's that new information. Those who have, who have died, who are in Christ, that is, they have put their faith in Christ. They are part of the redeemed. They are going to rise first. They are going to, to receive glorified bodies. Well, well, what if there's nothing left of that body? You know, when you think about it, you think about the, the billions of people that have, that have died and who knows in the, in the past 2,000 years and, 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 and there's dust and there's hardly even dust. We read about God in Genesis 1 as the creator God. And God is able to take a body that has dissolved into whatever and in the mighty power, creative power of God, he's able to bring all of that back together. 
so that when the day comes that Mark dies and goes in the ground and his body decays, when he is resurrected, it's that same Mark who's going to rise from the dead, glorified because of the power of God. There will be resurrection, not reincarnation. There's not extinction. There's not just transmigration into some force, resurrection. And then Paul says there's going to be rapture. Then we who are alive and remain, hmm, we who are alive and remain, perhaps hoping that uh, it would happen before he died, uh, might, might happen in his life, lifetime, shall be caught up together. And there's, there's where we get our word rapture. If anyone says, well, the word rapture isn't in the Bible, well, this is the word rapture. comes just comes out of a Latin translation. Rapture, caught up. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds. That sounds like, that sounds like language that's used of, of the, the ascent of Christ, the language used in the Old Testament. Behold, he comes on clouds of glory. There is rapture. Rapture, to meet the Lord in the air, to meet the Lord in the air. And then there's reunion, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Now this is what the Lord gave Paul to tell his church. There's descent, and then there's this summons. There's resurrection and rapture and reunion. I think the picture here of the reunion, and all of this, understand, happens in moments of time. We, we don't, don't try to put time on all this, okay? This is an eternal timeless God coming. This picture of, of welcoming, you know, think of welcoming someone who's returning home. Someone that you've not seen for a long time. A long time. And you can't wait. And so you've, you know, whether, you know, so you're at the airport. And what, what are you doing? You're, you're scanning the crowd looking for that person. You're not looking for all kinds of other people. You're looking for that person. When, when this reunion happens that we read about here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're not going to be scanning the crowd for our loved ones. We're going to be gazing upon Jesus and longing to touch him. He's our greatest joy. There will be tremendous joy in seeing loved ones who have gone before us. But it won't be any joy like what we'll have seeing Jesus. That's who we'll see. Jesus said, I I come again to receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be. That's the centerpiece of the reunion. Well, Paul gives him that teaching, and it's interesting. He, he does really give us the application of this passage. Uh, he, 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 okay, so here we have this wonderful, glorious truth about things to come. Well, what's the application of it right now? He gives it to us. I really think he gives it to us both in verse 13 and verse 18. He, he is, and, and remember, as he is writing, he is talking to believers. He's talking to his church. He's talking to believers in Jesus Christ. And so really the the, the first exhortation, the first application is this, don't sorrow as someone who has no hope. He's saying, Paul's saying to to his Christian brothers and sisters in in this city where they're they're facing some trials and, 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 and they're experiencing loss, he's saying don't sorrow as someone who has no hope. He's not saying don't sorrow, he's saying don't sorrow as someone who has no hope. And that can be true in our lives because, first of all, the gospel takes away your fear of death. 
There may be, un, you know, certainly when we think about death, there, there's, there's uncertainty, and, and, and uncertainties can be fearful for us. If you will, probably maybe what, what, what might scare you the most isn't, isn't that you will die, it's how you'll die. And we don't know how that's going to happen. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who the way they died was they were executed. Paul himself lost his life. He was killed for following Christ. But we don't have to sorrow as those who have no hope because the gospel takes away your fear of death. The gospel also takes away your hopeless grief. You see, for the believer, death is not some eternal journey in in some nebulous, dark underworld. It is the conclusion of the chapter of one's earthly journey, but it marks the beginning of their next chapter with the Lord. Yes, tears are going to flow, and tears do flow, but they really are tears of farewell until we meet again. These are, these are tears of parting. You know, maybe if we could compare it, it's more like when, when your, your child leaves home and you feel the pain of the separation because you're going to miss them. But, but those are not tears of eternal parting. So the, the gospel takes away our hopeless grief. And thus the, the gospel is giving us a way through that grief to not be owned by it. And to not be controlled by it, but gives us a way through it because of what we have in Christ. So his first exhortation, his first application, don't, don't sorrow as someone who has no hope. He's saying, he's saying to that church in Thessalonica, you know, here, all these Gentile converts, don't, you're not going to sorrow the way you used to. It's going to be different. It's going to be different. But then he also gives the other application down in verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So, so speak these words to one another is what he's saying. <laughs> There's a sense in which by my preaching this message to you this morning, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of doing verse 18 there. <laughs> speak these words to one another. Up in verse 13, you take comfort yourself. Verse 18, you bring that to others. Speak these words in your home. Speak these words in your church. That word comfort means to come alongside and and, and to come alongside to console, to encourage, to strengthen, to counsel, to instruct, to exhort. These, These are not words just simply to provide emotional support. But these are words of revelation that are to encourage us and on which we are to, to base our speech to one another. These, these words are given to us to help us throw away unchristian grief that can consume us and destroy us. These words are given to help us keep our hope fixed on the coming of Jesus Christ. Speak these words to one another. This is what it means to be a Christian community. Our culture is obsessed with health. Uh, Our media is saturated with medical reports and health advice and new diets. I mean, we should know that. We live in an area of not only the United States, but the world that's a health mecca. People come from around the world to Northeast Ohio to address health issues. Our culture is obsessed with staying young. 
having multiple elective surgeries. See, because people, people feel youth and, and, and thus life slipping away. And they're trying to put the brakes on it. But you can't. The irony of all that is, is we may feel like through all this we extend life. And certainly, you know, the stats are telling us that, uh, that there's longer lifespans. Sp- life but in doing so, we are just facing more disease, more weakness, and more loss. See, the promise of the gospel isn't a release from this body into another. The promise of the gospel is the transformation of this body. The transformation. The Lord gave my mom 93 years of life. I watched her waste away to almost nothing. And the last images of her alive are not pretty. I'm watching age take its toll on my 95-year-old dad. And it's robbing him of his memory. And it is systematically taking away his strength. I find one of the challenges when I'm talking and visiting with my dad is how do you keep some sense of purpose and hopefulness? I mean, what do you have to live for when life is being hoisted out of a bed and put in a chair and wheeled to a table and then hoisted out of the chair and put back in bed? His thinking isn't clear, but he seems to be conscious of that. What is there to look forward to? My mom was, was in constant pain uh, with, uh, with a, a bad hip that was bone on bone. And like I said, my dad's memory and strength is going. What, what, what do either of them have to look forward to? Resurrection. Not reincarnation as an animal or, if lucky, another human being, only to go through this whole cycle again. Not, not, not getting rid of the body, you know, this, this body that causes so much pain and hardship and just existing as some disembodied spirit. No, uh, they will experience transformation of that very same body so that everything works and functions precisely as their maker intended. The mind will be sharper than it's ever been before. There will not be these physical weaknesses and infirmities. Arthritis, no longer. Aches and pains, no longer. Cancer, no longer. You have to hear the words because Paul describes it this way. Second Corinthians 4, starting at verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power of God may, may be of God and not of us. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. 
We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore we speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgivings to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's what we have to look forward to. I just want to say a word as I close, because let me be honest, First Thess 4, 13 through 18 is talking to Christians. It's talking to the church. But I know that these matters of future and what's coming are on other people's minds. I, was, like I said before, I've just had more conversations with my neighbor in the past uh, summer than I've had before. And, and one of them, you know, just talking about, he was talking about this problem here and that problem there, and, you know, and in places of the world or our nation, and, and he said, you know, it must be, you know, remind us that, uh, that he's coming or, or that God's coming. There's some awareness that, 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 there's, a, that, that there's a God and that God's going to do some things. But for my neighbor, I know it, it, it ends about there because I don't think he knows what happens after that or really what all that means. For the one who has not put their faith in Christ, what happens after death is not reincarnation, What happens after death is not extinction. What happens after death is not release as a phantom force into the eternal cosmos. What happens after death, even for the unbeliever, is a different kind of resurrection. Jesus said in John 5, 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And Revelation chapter 20 warns, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Dead and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of the fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. See, there's going to be a resurrected, the resurrection into a body forever, but in this case, not to pleasure, but to torment and pain of absence from God forever. The return of Christ and resurrection are the foundation of the church's expectation. But they are a terror to those who have no hope. I hope this morning that your faith is in Christ so that these glorious things that Paul has spoken of, the word of God has given to us, of what awaits and what is coming will be your experience. And I pray that you're ready so that your resurrection 
will be a resurrection to life and not to death. Lord God, work, I pray, in, in our hearts. Thank you for this blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the comfort that gives to us in the face of death, Lord, so that we don't have to fear it, so that we can be comforted when, when, when our loved ones who are in Christ walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, there is still a glorious future. There is still life. Jesus Christ is coming again. He is coming for his own. He is coming in glory and power and authority. How we long for that day. And how we grieve for those who are not ready for that day. Oh Lord God, if there are any here this morning, may this be the day that they prepare by trusting Christ as their Savior who died for their sin, who rose that they might have life. May they trust him. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, we're going to sing as we close our, our time and don't know what the Lord might be doing and stirring in your heart even now as we talk and as we pray. Perhaps there's a response that he has so he's stirring in your heart of surrendering some things to him, maybe finding afresh in him your strength, your hope your help, your comfort. Maybe you'd like to have someone pray with you about that. We invite you to come. Perhaps you're here and you've never trusted Christ and you'd like to talk with someone and have them show you how you can know for certain that sin is forgiven, that everlasting life is yours. If we can be of help to you, please let us do that. And even as we sing, slip out, we'll have someone just privately go aside with you and, and talk with you. But we are here to help. So let's respond to the Lord even as we close in song. Help us, Lord, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.